Hey guys, Rafe here from the Evolve Move Play podcast. So this week, I'm extremely excited to welcome on John Verveke. John Verveke is a cognitive psychologist and a cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto. In addition, he's a practitioner of Taiji Chuan, which is a movement practice, Vipassana, which is a meditation practice, and Metta, which is a contemplation practice. And he is really interested in trying to solve the problem of what he calls the meaning crisis. He has a series of lectures coming out right now called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So I was really excited to get him on because this is a huge topic that informs the Evolve Move Play approach. We are really aimed at helping people overcome the movement crisis through movement practice. So there's a lot of common language that, that Verveki and I shared and it, it became a very interesting conversation that moved rapidly across topics. I think you guys are gonna get a lot out of it, but it might be a little bit hard to follow at times. So if you're having trouble following, please send me a question about anything that you missed, or check out John Verveke's lectures. He also has a book on zombies and the meaning crisis, and we'll check, uh, put that in the show notes as well. So without further ado, I think you guys are gonna really enjoy this, John Verveke. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. John, welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. Um, you're a cognitive psychologist, is that correct? I'm both a cognitive psychologist and a cognitive scientist. So I'm at the University of Toronto. I'm in the psychology department, and I'm also in the cognitive science program. So I'm both a cognitive psychologist and a cognitive scientist. Okay, awesome. And you also are a teacher of uh, Vipassana, Tai Chi Chuan, and Metta, is that correct? That, that, that is correct, yes. I, I teach those extracurricular at a place called the Multi-Phase Center, also at the University of Toronto. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So I, I think you just popped up in my YouTube feed as like something I'd be interested in. Um, <laughs> and I, I saw that you had this series of lectures called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So I've been considering all those, reading through some of your, uh, or listening to some of your other um, interviews, listening to your, uh, your discussion with Jordan Peterson, all really interesting stuff. And I love the way that you're kind of bringing together uh, the cognitive science with the philosophy, and then the spiritual traditions and the traditions of wisdom. Yes. And so I, I th think the place to start, obviously, is with the question of meaning and, right. and, and what the meaning crisis is. So I, uh, I, I, th I think it'd be interesting to frame this a little bit through uh, through this movie Fight Club, because I was listening to you. <laughs> yeah. You're talking about the having mode versus the being mode. That's right. That's right. And I happened to listen to another friend of mine in, a, in an interview, and he was talking about Fight Club, and it reminded me of that. So those two things kind of popped in my head together. And so 
I don't know how well you remember the movie, but basically it starts with this guy going through this totally meaningless gray existence. Yes, yes. And he meets this character, this charismatic character, Tyler Durden. So the narrator and Tyler Durden then go and they sit in a bar together. And Tyler says, we, um, <laughs> we work at jobs that we hate to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't like. Yes, yes. It's a very telling, very telling, yeah. And I think that that is as, um, yeah, that's as kind of evocative a description of what it feels like to be stuck in this meaning crisis as you Yes, think. yeah, I think so. I, I think that's a very apt thing. Um, I, I think that's a very good description of sort of the, you know, the experience of meaninglessness. Uh, and I think we should also see we should talk about it in terms of its symptomology, the kinds of symptoms that we're seeing. I think yeah, it's reasonable to think that the meaning crisis is one of the way. One of the ways is it's expressing itself is in like the mental health crisis, the rise of anxiety, uh, depressive disorders, the fact that although worldwide suicide is declining, we're getting an upsurge in suicide in young people or places in the United States, um, that you're getting the addiction crisis, the opioid crisis is, 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 is rising. Um, you get the sense, and we, uh, Chris Mastopietro and Philip Misovic and I talked about this in the book on the zombies, you get the increasing sense of the pervasiveness of bullshit in our society, and I use that term in a technical sense, so like Frank Goods yeah. notion. Um, you get the, the, the you get this weird paradox that everything is being politicized, but the political process is being disavowed by most people. People are disenfranchising; um, they are pulling back. Right, um, voting is going down generally. There's spikes, of, of course, over particular things, but in general, it's going down. You have disenfranchisement um, from uh, religious institutions, you have the increase in, um, you know, in loneliness. It, it's it's telling that the you know the United Kingdom has created a new ministry of loneliness, which is like it yeah. sounds Orwellian. Um, and so you have you, you have all of this um, uh, going on. And then I think as I as I argued with Chris and Philip, you have the mythological expression of it. You have the zombie zeitgeist. You have this this this, this pervasive you know. It, uh, mythology of the zombie and the zombie apocalypse for a culture. And if we want to talk about it later, I think the zombie is a, a way in which our culture is trying to mythologically articulate and express uh, this sense of meaninglessness. So I think all of these things are ways of trying to get at what the meaning crisis is. So, so years ago, like as I've been building up what I do, you know, I started, actually started as an anthropology student at university and had this background doing martial arts since I was a child. Great. Started teaching gymnastics and parkour. And so I articulated that there's this, there's this fundamental paradox that we're facing in modern society, which is that in a lot of ways, as like documented by Steven Pinker, we live in the best world that you could ever live in, right? Like yeah, yeah. safest, it, you know, you have the most abundance of food, the best food, the best music, everything's available at your fingertips. And yet people are suffering, right? This was, you know, I've, I put out this talk in like 2012 and a lot of these things have accelerated a lot since yeah, then. Yep, very much. Uh, but, but like at that time, I think uh, it was like one in five American women are on some kind of, uh, or maybe it was one in 10 American women are on some kind of psychiatric medication. Yeah. The yeah. rate at which little boys are being given Ritalin is like one in five. It's, it's extraordinarily high. And um, so, yeah, I think, yes. The, so, um, yeah, I mean, and 
I think that's a wonderful contrast that's come up in some of my courses, the contrast between Pinker, who is still sort of advocating an enlightenment ideology. I mean enlightenment in the historical sense, not like Buddhist enlightenment, right? And, and that, you know, all we have to do is do the, and then, you know, and then, no, no, what we seem to be happening is, no, no, people are getting in, in many ways, right, uh, um, more and more uh, fundamental. This is not an adequate word. They're getting unhappy. Yeah. The, the, the problem with, with happiness is it, 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 it conflates many different things together. And so I think the part that we're talking about of what's lumped into happiness is, again, this, this meaningfulness, uh, the, the meaning in life part. It's, it's telling, for example, that as the American economy over the last few years has sort of improved, that, that the, the happiness rating of the United States is still, still declining, uh, going down significantly. So, okay, cool. I'm really excited now. And, and now <laughs> kind of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure where to go, but I wanted to, this is a, a central concept to me, right? Yeah. For my work is all based on this evolutionary idea, right? We, sure. we have an evolved nature. Yes. Movement practices should be congruent with our evolved nature. And then yeah. in general, we need to kind of think about cultivating ourselves in reference to the idea that, that there is some basic thing underneath that, that responds well to certain things and not to other things. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and so ways I have about talking about that. So there's lots of, th um, I'm trying to develop, you know, a conceptual vocabulary, a theoretical grammar for trying to articulate this in ways that go both ways, in, in ways that work both ways, that help give people a way of making sense of their lived experience, but also can connect to the scientific enterprise of studying these things and understanding them empirically. And so one of the things I've been trying to do, again, in conjunction with other people, like I, 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 a lot of really good work I'm doing with Dan Chiappi on this, is like to, to pay attention to other, the many ways in which we know, or at least the many ways in which we learn. So we're, we're very focused on propositional learning in our culture. We have a very belief-centric culture. We, we think that what knowledge is, is right, to, to ha have a proposition that we assert. That's a belief, right? So, and, and I'm a scientist. Propositional knowledge is really important. Theories are propositional knowledge, right? And yeah, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not dissing that at all, right? But knowing, that kind of knowing is not the same as three other kinds of knowings that I want to talk about. And, and I think your practices bring them together in very important ways. And I want to talk to you about that. Yeah. But let me just articulate them first. One is procedural knowing. This is knowing how to do things, like how to catch a ball or yeah. how to ride a bicycle. You know, and this, this works in terms of, you know, your, your skill. Then you, there's your perspectival knowing. This is the ability to generate perspectives. Like, so I'm generating a perspective right now. You are salient to me. You are foregrounded. Things are backgrounded. So things are salient and obvious to me. There's, there's a, a field of salience and obviousness that is dynamically constantly being sculptured by me as I move and reflect on my environment, right? And that is really, really central. And, and so and you, you don't realize how important this is unless you look at some things. Like the work I'm doing with Dan is uh, with scientists who work with the, the rovers on Mars and, yeah. and what they're trying to do is, what do you do to have a sense of presence? So instead of just sort of reading information about Mars, what do you do so that you actually feel as if you're on Mars, right? And because you really need that to interact well, right? So that sense of presence. And that's, and you know, and you're trying to create it in virtual reality and all kinds of things. So there's that perspectival knowing. And then there, there's an even deeper kind of knowing. 
there's the kind of knowing that, that's participatory knowing. It's the kind of knowing that is about the deep ways in which you and the real, and reality are conformed and connected together. Let me give you just a, a way of understanding this. This is something we learn, so, but we think it is natural to us, right? We see the world as a story, and we come to understand ourselves as a story, as an autobiography, yeah, yeah. right? And that's right. Yeah. And so, so we are a story, right? Within a story, and and we, yeah. the world is an evolving story, and we're, and so we know. Do we know this? It's not really what. It's not something we know. It's a foundation of how we can, you know, be who we need to be, and the world be what it needs to be, so that all the other knowings are possible for us. Does that. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm super. This is one of my favorite points that you make. It's something that's really interesting to me from coming from a movement background, right? Because totally, totally, yeah, totally. Because we, you know, like I can describe for you how to do a movement skill. Yes. And 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 you you don't have an embodied sense of it. Right? That's right. That's and, right. And I've I recognized this repeatedly through you know because I, I'm I'm very attracted to scientific literature. I love to to read and and, and absorb tons of information. But I recognize more and more that. Um, the information that's only in that uh, propositional area, yeah, relatively limited, and that a lot yes. of the most important wisdom that we can generate ha happens at these other things. So, if you would for me, can you just repeat the the four types of knowing that you've laid sure. out? Yeah, yeah. So there's the propositional, propositional. And there's procedural. This is knowing how. Yes. Perspectival. This is like you're doing it right now. You like things are salient and obvious to you in this really textured, dynamic like landscape, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's participatory. This is the way in which you are assuming identities and assigning identities to the world such that you and the world fit together. You're yes. tuned to each other so that the you, you can acquire beliefs, you can acquire skills, you can yeah. generate perspectives that aren't weird or horrific to you, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think the point you made just before you asked my, my question is the crucial thing. I think that most of the most of the core meaning making that goes into a meaningful life as opposed to a meaningful statement sure. is, is the way in which that procedural perspectival and participatory knowledge is connecting us to the world, right? And connecting us yeah. to ourselves and connecting us to each other. And so, and, and I think also wisdom has to do with most of those, right? Wisdom is not about what you know, it's, it's more about the how of knowing. Yeah, or it's, yeah, um, or it's, you know, knowing information is one thing, but knowing the relevance of the information is another thing. That's, well, that's exactly what my work is all about. I mean, so the, my primary cognitive scientific work is on a theory of relevance realization, right, which is a theory about, because this is the primary problems brains face. Out of all the information available to you, what information do you find relevant? What information are you going to pay attention to? Out of all the information in your head, what information are you going to find relevant such that you can, you're going to remember it, right? Out of all the different patterns of behavior you can engage in, which, which set of actions are you going to select as relevant? And then how are all of those relevant to each other? This is, this is the core thing uh, that makes you a cognitive uh, agent. Uh, and, and I think I would argue that I have explicitly argued and with other people like with Tim Lillicrap and Blake Richards and Leo Ferraro and others that that process of relevance realization is happening way below the level 
of you know sort of our beliefs yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. So so there's this this central problem that I think you know is revealed in some sense through physical practice. Yes. That we that the the majority of us is happening at a subcognitive level. Yes. Yes. Well, I would, I would at least say a, a sub-inferential, sub-semantic, sub-representational level. See, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be finicky. No. See, part of what I'm trying to do as a cognitive scientist is to get people to understand how cognitively important those levels are. So I want to extend the notion of cognition yeah. to, to those. Yeah. So it's at least, it's somewhat blind to the narrative self, you could say. Totally. Totally. Although narrative taps into it in powerful ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So th this is this is really um, uh, there's so many ways we could go here. It's very interesting to me because you're this this problem that you just referenced, I think is the central problem that we face in life. It's the central problem in movement practice. It's something that I feel like is revealed through all these different re resources that I'm looking at, which is that there's way too much out there. It's yes. far too complex and we have to somehow choose to pay attention to things in order to actually act. And in yes. choosing to pay attention to things, we're inherently setting a value structure to them. So, yeah, that's very much, very much. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, as I said in the email, you know, I, I, I've been very influenced by Jordan Peterson, your colleague, um, but also I've seen the same kind of realization in John Boyd, the military strategist, mm. in Nikolai Bernstein and J.J. Gibson, who are hugely influential in the whole arena of like motor theory right now. Of course. I mean, I, I, I was privileged to study J.J. Gibson with John Kennedy, one of his greatest, you know, protégés. Yeah. Uh, John, John Kennedy had a huge influence on me. And so my whole orientation towards third generation Cogsci and the whole ecological, you know, embedded embodied approach was deeply influenced by that confrontation with Gibson. That's awesome. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually like, you know, this is, I, let me, I think this may be interesting. I'll just give you a, a tiny bit of background. I don't want to go too deep into it because the audience might know this, but um, essentially I came from, you know, gymnastics, right? And I had a very linear pedagogy of teaching, um, you know, very much sort of technical, biomechanical based teaching. I then started teaching parkour and I brought that into that and built all these sort of atomized ways of teaching people movement. And then I took my parkour and I took it into nature. And as I was teaching people in nature, right. something really interesting happened, which is that I had a, uh, basically a set of drills that I would take people to, through and a set of errors that I expected to make and then a set of, of cues that I would give based on those errors. Right. What happened is they stopped making a lot of the errors as soon as I put them in trees instead of boxes in the gym. Right, right. And they started self-organizing and generating yep. Yep. skills that I hadn't yet taught them. Right. That, yeah. So. I, I, I was like, whoa, this is, at first I was actually kind of like, it hurt my ego. Cause like, <laughs> yeah, what, what am I for? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, but what I did was I kind of leaned into it and I started thinking about this idea of like, how do I trick my athletes into learning things? Yeah. And I had a, one of my students who actually pointed out that I was essentially operating within like a dynamic systems approach. Totally. And so I've, I've kind of been doing that, let's say, on a very intuitive level for mm -hmm. six years. And then just within the last couple of years, I've gone and started reading like Franz Bosch, who's kind of the biggest guy bringing that into the strength and condition community, reading Nikolai Bernstein. Have you you've read Bernstein as well, right? I don't think so. I mean, uh, yeah. so I've, I, 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 I'm more familiar with uh, uh, like Alicia Uraro's book, Dynamics in Action, in which she really tries to integrate 
dynamical uh, systems theory into explaining behavior, uh, human behavior. Um, yeah. So I, go ahead. Go ahead. I think it'd be really so. So so in any event, I, I'm reading Bernstein. I'm reading Bosch and and uh, and following um, as well Peterson, who's also talking about J.J. Gibson, and then. Okay. And then the guys within the the movement teaching community who are trying to teach elite team sports athletes how to have better movement skills, how to recognize affordances in the environment, as you frequently right. talk about, um, yeah. they're all basically talking about this confluence between um, Gibson and and Bernstein. Yeah. So all this is fairly new to me, right? I'm just I'm playing with it. It has a lot of intuitive meaning for me, but I don't have the same layer of 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 kind of depth in understanding where these theorists come from um so that's just kind of like how this perspective arrived for me and and within that there's this central idea that that essentially what we're trying to 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 do in creating an adaptive athlete is solve this problem of the complexity of the environment right and how do you make the athlete adaptive to orienting towards what's relevant in their environment what their action capabilities are to the environment, and then how to make the right decisions and act upon that. And that, that just dovetails with like the core of my work. First of all, the framework, I mean, because, you know, third generation CogSci is a, a precisely about this marriage, yeah. right, uh, of, you know, dynamical systems with, you know, ecological understandings of perception and action, right? And, and those, those are the two, you know, foundations, the two columns on yeah. which you, you, you build uh, third generation cogsci, and then the central problem that has been the core uh, of all of my scientific work. Everything, all of this stuff I do on meaning and wisdom and insight and flow and all states of consciousness and you know blah 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 blah. It all is grounded in how does the brain do relevance realization? Sure. How does the embodied brain do relevance realization? And the key part of my argument is it's exactly because of its embodiment. Uh, that the brain is capable of doing relevance realization. And so yeah. all of that fits together. So, it, I, I mean, what you said is very consonant, both with the framework that I'm using in, in my work and even in the in, in the video series, and then the central problem um, that I've tried to tackle scientifically. And then what I, what, I guess what my, 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 my main, sec, my, 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 my main project is, what, can I take this, understanding of the relevance realization machinery and then use it to get back like non-trivial non-hackneyed uh, understandings of meaning and life and wisdom so that they they become powerful challenging uh, and, and also affording terms for people as opposed to what they have generally decayed into for us yeah absolutely and this is so to, to quote Peterson, who basically says, you know, we have that that scientific model, which is um, which is propositional, and that tells us what the world is like. And then we have this model of how to act in the world. Yeah. And it's my kind of way of thinking about this. And I think that this dovetails with what you're saying is that as we've scaled up our ability to solve problems in that propositional zone, in that what is zone, we've somehow undercut our ability to think effectively about and solve problems in the how to act in the world problem. Yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that that's that's a succinct way of putting it. I mean, the series goes through, there's a very long, complicated historical process with many factors, but I think that is one of the key results of it, that we basically, right, we've got this sort of lopsided development, and, 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 it's, and it's, 
and we we we've also sort of culturally identified with it. We, we've taught, we've even reduced, and I think that's the right word. We've reduced spiritual traditions to belief systems. We we think we in fact we 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 talk about spirituality as as beliefs, right? As if the belief structure is the core of even these systems. And so I think yeah, we have lost touch with. Um, We've lost touch with, again, how to activate, access, uh, articulate, express, and enhance a lot of this machinery that's making meaning, that's allowing us to fit ourselves to a, a, a complex, dynamically changing world in a dynamically adaptive manner. And, and also to, I think this is something we need to talk about, that adaptive machinery right, that's telling us what's relevant is also the same machinery that tends to, to become like overwhelming to us when we're, engaged, when we're falling prey to self-deception. Yeah. And so, so the very machinery that makes us adaptive by making things salient and obvious to us is also the machinery that makes us self-deceptive by making the wrong things salient and obvious to us. And so we also need to think about, again, wisdom as you know what we need what the the it's not only that we need to get in touch with this machinery we need to get in touch with this machinery in ways that are afford our capacity for self-transcendence for for going through the developmental changes that will make us capable of being seeing through these illusions and reconnecting to reality in a better way so what i'm saying is it's not just that we are ignorant of the machinery we are also ignorant of the way in which that machinery can cause us to fall prey to illusion and self-deception. Yeah, absolutely. So, so much interesting stuff to pick up there. I think maybe it'd be interesting for me to just kind of go through what I saw as your core points, what I read, and then we can, we can build off of that. So we have this machinery, as you said, that, that allows us to engage in, um, all this complex ability to realize relevance, right? Yep. Have more cognitive sophistication than anything else. But that yep. also seems to have this downside that we have this ability to bullshit ourselves. Totally. Very much. Yes. Right. Yeah. I, so, I think that's that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so then in your in your lecture series, it seems like the the kind of overarching point that you're trying to make is one, we this is the machinery that we have. It can be optimized. Yes. Um, after the Bronze Age, at the beginning of the Axial Revolution, there was this whole set of psychotechnologies That's that right. developed that allowed us to essentially go along the path of cultivating wisdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These, I think so. These um, these psychotechnologies were 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 built into a worldview that had an idea of a supernatural, uh, a another plane of existence that was more real. Right? Yes. Yeah. The two worlds mythology. Yes. Yeah. There's two worlds. And then um, when the scientific revolution started to undercut that mm-hmm. lost the ability to effectively sort of transmit those technologies yes, or to, to talk about them effectively. And so it seems like your project is to, it, it seems like there's a, there's this emergent um, confluence between what we're learning from cognitive science and what we're learning from psychology and in these other fields that's actually revealing some of those truths of those traditions and giving us a better language to talk about them. That's exactly right. I, 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 wow, I'm really impressed. You did that extremely well. So congratulations. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's important because um, 
I mean, it, it wasn't just a scientific revolution. It's a whole bunch of things. It's the Protestant yeah. Reformation side, but you, that's that's definitely a, 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 a watershed point. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, what the scientific revolution gave us for a very long time is a worldview in which we don't fit, mm-hmm. right? So we have a scientific explanation uh, of, ev- well, sort of of everything, but we don't have a scientific explanation of how we generate scientific explanations or how we generate the meanings that make scientific explanations possible or how we create the communities that do the science that make the scientific worldview. We don't have good, uh, like, so we don't fit into that worldview. Um, and so I, I, I think that's important. So it's like when I say mythology, I'm saying I'm saying something really important here. I'm not saying like a fable or a fiction, right? A mythology is right is 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 a way of using imagery and metaphor uh, to create a structure where, where where we get that worldview attunement that you and I have been talking about, yeah. right? We we get that you know here's me and here's the world and here's how I fit into the world, right? And so we don't have a world we, we, we and that two world mythology, like legitimated and help people articulate and express how the psychotechnologies could afford self-transcendence, right? How it could take you out of the world of decay or illusion and into contact with realness. And we can maybe talk about it later. People have these profound experiences of being in contact with, you know, the really real or intense realness. And those are deeply transformative of them. But what happened is we, we no longer have a worldview, as we've just said, that legitimates and articulates self-transcendence because we don't even belong to that worldview, let alone giving us an account of how we find meaning and self-transcendence in it. Now, what's happening in third-generation cog sci, and I think in other disciplines, but I'm only I, I can only speak of my own, yeah. right, is that we're getting a scientific worldview that is starting to answer all these questions about meaning-making and all these other kinds of knowing that would both um, give us an, an understanding of them and how to optimize them and also re-legitimate them. Tell us, yes, this is how we fit in to the, the scientific worldview. And so now I understand right, how I and the world work together and why this is, makes sense and why this is a real thing to talk about. Right, and so it's very important that people have this worldview attunement that situates, organizes, and legitimates the psychotechnologies of self-transcendence. Excellent. So, what what comes up for me there is that when when let's say our our worldview, our um, you know, let's say that we had the scientific, rational, materialist worldview, and that sure. worldview becomes dominant. And now we have these traditions of wisdom that, that, at, at in, in some level, were were seemed incongruent, or the language that they were built in is incongruent. I think um, I think they still are in some ways. So go ahead. Yep. And um, what strikes me is that once those worldviews have to sort of articulate themselves in ways that seem incongruent with our basic understanding of the world, they're prone to bullshit. Yes, very much, very much. So I want you to go ahead. I don't, I don't think we've actually, you've given the technical definition of bullshit, which I think oh, is sure. <laughs> you talk about bullshit and, and, and yeah, expand on that idea of, of how, how we're going to recover the positive without getting stuck in the bullshit layer. And, and how right. That's, that, that is so much the finesse of what is going on here. Totally. Yeah. 
Okay, so the the term um, I'm, I'm using bullshit in a way that is inspired by and derived from um, Harry Frankfurt's seminal essay on bullshit that he now wrote 20 years ago, and uh, and Frankfurt uh, was interested in making an important distinction between the liar and and the and the bullshit artist or the bullshitter, whatever you want to use. You see, the liar the liar manipulates you because of your commitment to the truth because truth matters to you, right? At least some truths, right? I can alter your behavior by getting you to believe that something is true because then you will adjust to that truth, right? And so that's how lying works. Now, according to Frankfurt, the bullshit artist works in a totally different way. The bullshit artist basically gets you to be indifferent to the truth, to not care about whether or not something is the truth. I sort of add on that a little bit and say, well, what, what the bullshit artist is doing is getting you, right, not motivated by what's true, by getting you motivated by what you find salient, what's catchy to you. Yeah. So the prototypical example of this is advertising. This is one example I often use, right? Right. You see a commercial, there are people in a bar, somebody drinks, and then attractive people appear, right? You know that's not true. You just have to go into a bar. That's just not true. Okay, and they know that you know it's not true. That doesn't matter. And they pump hundreds of millions of dollars into this commercial because it's not about truth. It's about making the alcohol salient to you and catchy to you as an idea. And you know what you do? You go out and buy that brand of alcohol because not because you believe, but because it's it, it's been made salient to you. It catches your attention. It 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 it. it, it arouses your your affect in powerful ways right and so you can see and my favorite example of this from you know, sort of political satire was an old episode of the simpsons i i gave this talk once and somebody went and found it right you know the, there's the aliens and they're giving a speech and it's like my fellow americans when i was young i dreamt of being a baseball but now we must move forward not not backwards upwards not forwards twirling twirling towards freedom and it's gibberish it means nothing but you laugh because you know right you know that 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 causes often a rush in americans you know there's baseball and there's right there's freedom and there, there's going upwards upwards or twirling which is like this right and it's you know and and, and so you can make things very salient as a bullshit artist and manipulate people by getting them to do two things don't care about the truth like don't don't make that it, it, you know, try not to let the truth matter to you sort of put the truth aside and then get caught up in how catchy it is uh, let, let me just make one more point and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you respond for me this is central because it's a, I think it gives us a fundamental insight into how self-deception works because we use the metaphor of lying to ourselves as a way of trying to explain self-deception. And I think that's a very misleading metaphor because technically you can't lie to yourself. You can't believe, you know, that Susan loves you or Susan doesn't love you, let's say. I can't believe that and then sort of say to myself, Susan loves me. And just because belief doesn't work that way. You can't just make yourself believe and you can't just hold opposite beliefs. So you can't really lie to yourself. But you know what you can do? You can bullshit yourself. Because what you can do is you can alter how things are salient, right, by the way they interact with your attention. So suddenly this glass is salient to you. Yeah. Because of the way I brought it into your attentional field. So uh, salience grabs your attention, mm -hmm. but notice the opposite. You're left big toe. 
It's now salient to you. Attention can also make things that weren't salient, salient to you. So you can loop these. I can use my attention to make something salient, so now it's more likely to catch my attention, which makes it salient, which is more likely to catch my attention, and then I'm buying the alcohol, yeah. right? And so we, this, the, the, the bullshit is really, really um, the result of, again, this machinery of, of relevance realization and making things salient and obvious to us, being disconnected from the, you know, the pursuit of what's true or what's real. Yeah, absolutely. So um, sorry, that was a long speech, but I tried to just get an idea through. That was great because I think it's really important because I, I mean, it's, I think it's really at the center of what you're trying to describe, right? What you're trying to describe is because of the way that we're set up cognitively, we can either essentially engage in ways of bullshitting ourselves, and yes. and then there will be costs, or costs, yeah, or we can set up and create systems that allow us to. Um, systematically learn to overcome our our bullshit and optimize so that we can get more connected to that reality. Yes, and th this is something that's interesting. Uh, this word connection has come up a lot, and and that's something that I've I've noticed for myself in my work. Right, so I teach this week long workshop in the summer, and you know I, I basically just wanted to teach people movement in the woods, and we'd enjoy a camping trip together. But people came out of it, and they're like, "This is life changing. This is all these things." And so I, I yeah. started trying to articulate what that was getting back from me. And I came up with these four basic reconnections that people are making. Through play, they're actually reconnecting through the flow state. They're reconnecting yep. to their own real emotions, their own real sense of themselves, yep. what actually motivates them. I agree. Keep going, please. They're reconnecting to nature, which is super relevant to human beings. Mm -hmm. um, they're reconnecting to... Um, they're reconnecting to a tribe, to other people. To each other, yes. Yep. And um, and they're reconnecting to their sense of play, to fun, right? So there's, yep. a, there's a reconnection to self, a reconnection to play, a reconnection to movement. Um, or, yeah, let's say movement and play. They're reconnecting to the idea that movement is a positive thing for people. Because people are, are, are frequently in our culture through team sports, through the physical education system. They have adopted the, the, the lesson that they're not good at movement and movement yeah. isn't for them. Yeah. And yeah. At, it's a punishing, drudgerous, horrible um, work thing that yeah. you do yeah. and yeah. that they can avoid. Um, and so to get people to have this reconnection, they're like, oh, this can be fun. It's really powerful. So it, it, it seems to me that um, one of the, the central problems that we're facing is that the things that are nourishing to us um, mm -hmm. in general uh, – there are there are these sort, of, these sort of emergent systematic problems that tend to disconnect us from that. Yep. And that what we need is means or technology, psychotechnologies, of overcoming the things that would tend to distract us or take us away from what's really meaningful and to move towards the things that are actually meaningful. Yeah, both distraction and distortion. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's really what you said, I think is really important. I mean, when you do, when you look, I'm doing work with uh, Talia Rancidis, um, Jensen Kim, and uh, uh, Philip Ridgewitz on, on this, on, on, you know, what's the literature say about meaning in life? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, and so there's the psychological literature, there's the excellent book by uh, Susan Wolf, Meaning in Life and Why It Matters. And, 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 and why I bring it up is, the two themes that are emerging out of what what is it when people are talking about when they're talking about meaning because actually they're using a metaphor right yes. they're, they're, they're saying there's something about my my 
my life that's like how a sentence, you know, connects to my mind, right? It's a, me- it's a metaphor. So what's the metaphor actually pointing to, right? And it's pointing to these two things we've been talking about, and the one you just emphasized. One is the sense of coherence. This is the sense of, right, making sense, zeroing in on what's relevant, being, right? So, so that I, 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 I get how I fit in. And then that coherence is, to the other thing, is connectedness. I, I need to be connected, right? I need to be connected to myself. I need to be connected to what I take to be real, that these are really important. I need to be connected to other people. And they need to be reciprocal connections. They, yeah. they have to be capable of reciprocal realization, right? So if I'm well connected to you, it's a meaningful connection is if as I reveal myself to you, that affords you revealing yourself to me and we get this reciprocal realization going that makes for a really meaningful conversation, right? Awesome. So this, this, this making sense and I, I think these are just two sides of the same thing, by the way. So this is only an analytic distinction. This making sense and this being connected, not in, not in just some static sense, but in this dynamic sense of being coupled to the environment in, in reciprocal realization, right? And, and then the, 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 the point that Wolf brings up, we, we, we need to be connected to things that we feel, you know, you know that, that, that are bigger than us, that, that, that we're connected to something that has a value above and beyond our just merely liking it or yeah. finding pleasure in it. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> um, to go back to the original frame, right? Yeah. The club. The narrator and Tyler Durden are sitting there. And what he describes is a sense that the, that the actions that he's taking on a day-to-day level have, make no sense to him. Exactly, and there's no, and they they afford no connection. They afford no connection, and that's that's the fundamental problem that we're that we're sort of facing. And um, I wanted to kind of explain one of my central ideas to you, and I I think this might be interesting to you, hopefully. Um, but it, it's something that I, well, I was listening to your podcast with uh, the Soul Podcast or something. I really yeah, 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 that was yeah, that was, was super good. good. And at the end, you talked about about Nietzsche talking about the death of God. Yes. Yeah. And this is something that Peterson talks about as well. This idea yeah. that as the worldview that was founded on, say, Christ or say the axial revolution of of this dual world um, yeah. was was eroded away, mm-hmm. took mm-hmm. away these tools that we had to make sense of meaning. And so I think that's true. And I am curious whether there's perhaps a broader way that we could frame this. And, you know, as I said, my background's in anthropology. I'm also very interested in evolutionary biology. And of course. From, a, from an evolutionary biology perspective, there's this basic principle that when things change faster, the adaption of an organism or a system tends to adopt more broken solutions, like clues, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so from a, from a genetic perspective, essentially, if you have a, a region of the gene that is suddenly, a region of the, the gene, uh, genetic code that's suddenly under positive selection, and that positive selection is very positive, um, or is very strong, uh, the whole area around it will move. And likewise, yeah. if, if you have an area that's under really powerful negative selection, the whole area around it will move. And I right. think this is probably what's happening on a mimetic evolutionary perspective too it's like if you blow out the idea of god because it suddenly doesn't fit with the environment that you have you don't know how many other things that you disturb yep that and i think that i mean i i think um and chris and uh 
Philip agree with me on this. I, I, I think that's the whole, I'm, that's, I mean, because when you get Nietzsche's story of the madman running into the marketplace and pronouncing that God is dead, that's what he's telling them. He says, you don't understand what you've done, but you've got to read it. And, and, and he's talking to the atheists, by the way, right? 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 Uh, <laughs> you don't understand what you've done. You know, we've taken a sponge and we've erased the sky and we're forever falling. That's important. And then he also says, we have to become worthy of this. We have to, right? We have to go through a process of self-transformation and self-transcendence. It's not just a matter of changing our beliefs or adopting a new ideology. We have to go through a fundamental change in, in who and what we are and how we are in the world in order to, like, in order to be worthy of what, what's happened. Um, and so there's two aspects to this. It's like you've got you, 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 you to open up your understanding and see what's actually going on here. And then you've got to realize that that, is, that understanding is challenging you. Indispensably to a process of self-transcendence and self-transformation. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I just sort of grokked that about you, really, literally, today, um, listening to this. But th that's kind of the endpoint of, of your of your argument is that due to this disruption, there's mm -hmm. this necessity for us to take this step of self-transcendence that we have to do it. I think so. I think so. And then and then trying to point out in ways that I think that are consonant and convergent with what you're doing, how we have the natural capacities um, uh, uh, to do this. Uh, and then, and uh, we, saw, we also have some, we have both natural capacities and historical heritage that if we properly uh, understand the natural capacities and we properly salvage and from our historical heritage, we can uh, craft the solution. I don't think Nietzsche came up with a solution to the problem that he posed. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the problem with Nietzsche is all he did was invert the grammar of Christianity in, in, in important ways. I mean, this is this is a Heideggerian critique of Nietzsche, and I won't I won't get into it in depth. But I think Nietzsche posed the problem well, and I don't think he I don't think he I don't think he solved it. And I think we need there's a lot of work we have to do, and it's two kinds of work. It's both the theoretical work of getting that understanding, and then it is the the existential spiritual work of you know, going through the developmental transformation that we need to go through. Yeah. So, so, um, kind of the way that I've thought about this with, which I think is, is slightly different, but I think it's perfectly congruent actually. I think they really will lock into each other well is, so we, if you think about that model of essentially evolution, evolution, let's say is getting faster. The evolution of human culture is increasing since the 12th century or, or some period before that, where you have this, this explosion in the rise of capitalism and the rise of, of kind of the yeah. empirical mind that allowed us to, um, to create technologies much faster. But yeah. in our economic situ situation, so you talk about psychotechnologies, I think of, of culture as a set of, culture is technology. It's technology that allows the, the, yeah. the yeah. organism yeah. to effectively orient to its environment. And, and the, um, but the thing is that the environment is, the ecology, it's the economics, it's the technology, it's the ideological situation, it's yeah. all those things. Yes. And when when the when the technology changes, it change it changes our environment, it changes the optimal set of behaviors. Like, you know, this smartphone, I like to point out, um, has completely changed our world. And we have no we have no psychotechnologies around yes. how to optimally integrate with a tool that's this powerful and this pervasive in its effects. So uh, 
Yep, totally. I mean, and, and, and we have to pay attention to it. Yeah. Can go I just this yeah, go, go ahead, sorry. Because central to my, my thoughts, and I think it'll be, make, make a nice frame. So you, you end up with, with this, this problem that, that the speed of culture is changing because you have these two functions, the function that, that Im improves propositional knowledge, let's say, which is science, yeah. and the function that improves the production of capital. Yes. But those two things have, even though they've tr tremendously improved our lives in many, many ways, yes. they don't improve all the things that are matter to human beings, and they can erode things that matter to us. Yeah, yeah. And totally. so we we have this this problem that we have to we have to figure out how to write good code faster than we've ever wrote it before. I think so. And, and, um, and you know. I, 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 I'm sorry I interrupted because you were actually, that's a, a really good point you made. And I mean, you can point your viewers to clear examples of this. Like, you know, it's becoming increasingly clear that Instagram is just really bad for your mental health. <laughs> like, it's just really bad for your mental health. It, I know, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. so I know more. It, it, it really it, it is, it is a powerful inducer of a depressive mindset. Yeah. And, and, it's, it, and it also traps you in the having mode and, cuts off your access to the being mode and all stuff, all that. So it, it is, you know, and there's just increasing evidence. So you can point to many examples of exactly what you're talking about. Right? We have these, all these emerging technologies and they have all their manifest goals, but they have all of these latent side effects that are tremendously eroding our capacities uh, for meaning making. Now, what, what gives me hope um, is that, you know, the science can also be turned onto the meaning-making machinery, cognitive science. And it can also, we can also think about, you know, how we can relate to these technologies better, because that's what we are. We're not, to use Andy Clark's term, we're natural born cyborgs. Yeah, we've, yeah. We've been meshing with technology since Australopithecines, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, right? And so we can get a better understanding of all of that. And there, there's a chance, so I'm not, I'm not speaking teleologically here, yeah, but yeah. there's a chance that we can coordinate psychotechnologies and new emerging cyber technologies so that we can actually cultivate the wisdom of how to use and develop these you know emerging uh psychotechnologies and cyber technologies yes so that's a real chance for us yeah so then kind of my my solution that i've been working on towards this problem is like uh so we Science and 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 technology and capitalism have rapidly increased certain goods, right? Yeah, they've eroded things like connection to family, connection to community, connection to land, like yeah. knowledge of the environment. Um, all, all these other things are getting eroded. So we have to. So what I've sort of looked at is we have to sort of look back, and and this is where this ancestral paradigm becomes important, and start saying, how do we recapture the pieces that are in par? that were valuable in the environment. I like Peterson's analogy of bringing back the bones of your, of your, of your father from the underworld. Right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, go ahead. Recover that. And it, it seems to me that what your, what your project is, is essentially articulating how these wisdom traditions within like Buddhism and Taoism and, and, and similar traditions, um, give us paths to wisdom, um, and in ways that we can now make congruent with, cognitive science without accepting some of the bullshit that was layered into that or some right. of that was not consistent. 
Now, I agree with that. I, I, there's one caveat I would make. I, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want your viewers to think that that means that you know the Buddhism and Taoism get a get a you know get a free pass. Yeah. There's the, the, they should also be subject um, to uh, lots of lots of criticism and, and reflection as well. But yeah, I take your point. I mean, I, I I want to look at all of these revolutions where we went through these sort of massive leaps. The, the upper Paleolithic transition, and 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 I and I mean this respectfully. I think you're plugging into a lot of that in a very powerful way. But right. I also want to I want to plug into what came out of the Axial Revolution, right? right. I want to sure. plug into that one too, and I and I want to try and coordinate those together in powerful ways and try to understand how can we bring all of these together. Um, and and I want to also plug into what's happening with you know the cyber revolution. Um, yeah. But the computational, the like, what's happening there again, and and try and salvage from that. So I want to try and grab from wherever I can to try and create ecologies of psychotechnologies that will be really capable of you know self-organizing and, and being able to grow and develop and, and keep pace with the, this accelerating world. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so essentially. I, I I was trying to not get too much into all the other things because I'm still <laughs> having this conversation with you, um, because I, I want to talk about the role of movement practices within this. Totally, movement. me too. Yeah, um, that I think is really cool and unique about you is that you you're talking about these wisdom traditions and you're talking about the science and how you put them together, and, um, say spirituality and um, and science, but also your your Tai Chi Chuan practice. Uh, practice. Yeah. And you, for and for 28 years now, 28 years, and you understand that that there are things that you have to learn by embodying them. I, I'm, yes, very much. I mean, again, the access to the procedural knowing, the perspectival knowing, the participatory knowing is right via embodiment, both embodiment and embeddedness. Right, the way I'm, in, you know, deeply embodied, and the way I'm deeply embedded and connected to my environment. Yeah. So. Um, so, so yeah, so let's get into, to how movement culture plays into it. So if we have this model that essentially our culture has, has, has been throwing away really valuable pieces because mm -hmm. they weren't up to date. One of the pieces that I think that we've really thrown away is, well, connection to our bodies through movement, play and connection to nature. Yes, very much. All of those. Yes, I agree. Um, but then there's this, there's this. I mean, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. It's, it's like it's like the the broader culture is like a river, and then it creates these like backwaters that that are almost more intense versions of of what's come before. Because at the same time that we have the least active population in history, we have the most extreme athletes that have ever existed. Like the yes, top, yeah. and the top yeah. parkour and other flow sports are doing things that humans have never imagined, and they're sure. stretching what's possible in this really interesting way. So, so I wanted to, to note that, but. Um, you talked about embodied cognition, right? Yes. There's this, there's this tendency, it seems like, to think that we can derive wisdom or we can have wisdom purely through articulation, right? Purely through yeah. knowledge. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, the Descartian idea that we are a body or we are a mind and the body is sort of... Yeah, a Cartesian idea of that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, so I wanted to just 
Uh, yeah, well, let's get into that. But I wanted to, I guess, start with the idea of like, I started with parkour, right? And mm -hmm. started with all these other things, but parkour was the first thing that really felt deeply meaningful to me in a way that nothing else had felt. Sure. I, I dug deep into this process and then I found that I needed something to be aimed at. And initially I started aiming at like benchmarks, you know, mm. a competition, you know, lifting a specific amount of weight, doing a specific jump. And eventually I had this realization that, that those weren't deeply motivating to me. Right. They're extrinsic. Yeah. Trying to, to find the intrinsic motivation. Right. And, and then, then it was like, well, just following the whim of the moment wasn't enough. I had to have something that structured it. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. then I encountered Peterson's work and it was like this idea of, okay, the archetype you're aimed at, that's big enough to be aimed at something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and then it occurred to me that essentially what someone who's doing parkour is acting out is this basic idea that I think of it now as like motor behavioral therapy. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of work around what's called motor, motor intentionality, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You, you are acting out the idea that if you walk out into the world and intentionally approach things that scare you, you get a chance to grow. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Through intentionally putting yourself on the edge of chaos and cultivating those flow states, there's something about you that grows stronger. And so I think that's the core of this idea of, of like a parkour philosophy, which is something that's been talked about a lot, but has never been really articulated. And so what I see then is if you say that, why do you do that? You do that because it is meaningful to you. And you do that because the person you become is something that you admire more. Right. And then the question is, well, what is, can you articulate what that is? And then can you actually generalize those insights as effectively as possible? And so this is where I think the conversation with you and what you're doing is really particularly interesting and powerful for me and for the, for the movement community is how do we wrap these, how do we articulate the benefits of these practices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then create the psychotechnologies that allow us to cultivate wisdom, cultivate virtue in this broader way. Does anything come up for you when I kind of lay that out? Too much. <laughs> uh, for, for someone who just claimed that nobody's articulating the philosophy of parkour, I think you were doing a very, very good job at it. Um, so, I mean, th th there's a lots of things. I mean, you invoked it. I mean, so part of, uh, you invoked the idea of, of flow, right? And we should talk about that, that what that means. Um, and, and, you know, I just published something in the Oxford Handbook of Spontaneous Thought about flow and what's the machinery of flow and trying to understand it and that and why does flow you know try make people uh you know, it, one of the things that will make you rate your life as better is if you have more flow experiences in it why 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 is that the case how does the flow ex i i'm arguing in a new book that i'm um, that i mentioned i'm working on um uh with daniel craig and madeline abram abramian and hannah Chow is you know, it's called the cognitive continuum from insight to enlightenment about how the machinery of insight is actually being exapted, right, into flow, and then how that machinery is getting exapted into certain kinds of mystical experiences, and then how that gets exapted into these other, these transformative experiences that lead people to fundamentally transform themselves. And, and what I'm trying to argue is it, it's basically the same machinery. It's just getting sort of ratcheted up in powerful ways. And so... Um, again, 
I think just to, just to get the intuitive connections for for your for your viewers, when you have a, a moment of insight, right? Think about that. It's a, it's like there's clarity, there's coherence, and it's literally like a flash. And then there's and there's a deep sense of connectedness to it. Like you ah, I notice the language. I really get it, right? Like I I, I really grab yeah yeah right exactly right. And, and so there. Like it, 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 if you get that what what we're what that machinery is doing is insight is like this powerful ratcheting up of the processes that we then experience as meaningful, and then I think what the flow state is, and you've seen this in the video series, is, I think the flow the flow state is is a chaining of a bunch of insights together. It's an insight cascade, right? And and and. And I think it's also powerfully improving our capacity for implicit learning, but that's a, that's another argument I'll put aside for now, right? And then I think what's happening when we're getting into certain mystical experiences, and we just ran an experiment in my lab that, you know, the more mystical experiences you have, the more likely you are to rate your life as meaningful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And so what's happening in at least some mystical experiences is you're getting a, you're getting a flow state, but it's, it's not a flow state for, you know, this particular problem or this particular thing it's it's a flow state at the level of what we've been talking about throughout our discussion it's like your flow state for like how you're getting an optimal cognitive grip yeah. on, on 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 yourself and the world and how they fit together that's why when people are in these they 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 they, they have no propositions for it mm -hmm. it's it's ineffable but and and they use this language of oneness and and you know clarity and connectedness and realness because that's i think what's fundamentally what what's fundamentally going on there and so i think that there's deep connections if you'll allow me a metaphor there's deep connections between you know movement in the physical sense right and and then these movements of mind that are are responsible for transformation and meaning making and and and, and that's because, like look it's like you're, 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 you do uh, biological evolution, I, and so I, I point you to the work of like Michael Anderson and others, and they talk about how much, and, uh, and Andreas Wagner and others, you know, and how much of our biological evolution has been driven by acceptation, right? Right. So my tongues did not evolve for speech; they evolved for poison detection and for moving food around. But because they have lots of nerves, and because they're so flexible. I can make a speech making machine out of them. I don't have to create a speech machine out of, out of, from scratch, right? And, and Michael Anderson's idea is our brains are, all, are also doing that, like we're, we're constantly exacting, we're constantly taking things that, you know, we, we sort of develop for one set of purposes or functions, either biologically or through learning, and then we exact them. Now, I am making a, a, a point that is gonna, I think, be really relevant to the people in your community. Look, we talk about, you know, this area greatly expands, you know, during evolution, the, the frontal cortex. But you know what other area of the brain is expanding even faster? The cerebellum. Yeah. And, and the cerebellum is expanding and it's and it's and it doesn't and you know, part of it might be what that we're bipedal, but you know, that doesn't strike me as any more challenging than brachiation through trees, right? They're the right. So why why is the cerebellum expanding so much? And here's a, a view that was originally sort of radical in, you know, around 2007, but by 2014, you know, there's a consensus paper on it, that this, the cerebellum, which originally evolved for coordination and physical balance, 
has been exapted to fine tune the frontal cortex for conceptual right balance and integration and coordination and you and you're often using the same machinery that you use to navigate through physical space to navigate through conceptual and theoretical space right that's that they're, 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 they're that's what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a deep argument about the deep connections between physical movement and cognitive movement. Yeah, this is something I've talked about quite a bit is the idea that essentially what your, your cognition or your narrative self and do, is doing in some sense is, is modeling motor actions, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Modeling, I will do this, I would act this out and it's firing motor neurons and then it's saying something good will happen or something good won't happen. And because we can, we can model it, we don't have to act out all those solutions. That's right. We get to select among them. I, I, I agree. And I, what I'm suggesting to you, it is also goes the other way. It's precisely yeah. because you built up all this sensory motor competence that you can then reuse that tool to Right. Think about the relationship between Descartes' philosophy yeah, yeah. and the meaning crisis. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think these two things are deeply connected. Like, you know, I heard you say this in another one that you, you basically don't think that the cerebellum continued to expand because of movement demands. And I think that that I would challenge you a little bit on that. I think it did because I think that one of the things that makes human beings really unique is actually our plasticity of movement capacity. Yeah. This yeah. is idea that, that Bernstein talks about. I recommend checking out Bernstein here, but, but that is like, if you look at any one capacity, except something like throwing, human beings are not very exceptional compared to most animals. Right. But if you look at the diversity of things that you see at the Olympics, there's no other animal that could accomplish all the things that we could do. Right. Yeah. We're multi-automatic. Yeah. We are, but they can't swim. Right, right. They can't throw and they can't lift heavy things. You know, uh, a rhinoceros is much stronger, but you know, they don't have anywhere near our dexterity. So, so we expanded the brain in part to to control the most complex movement capacity that anything else has. Anything has. And yeah. at the same time, that's getting exacted into cognition, and yeah, yeah. are are basically uh -huh. self reinforcing. They're looping on each other. Right. So. I, yes, you're right, and your correction is well taken. And, and it, it, no, I think I, I think you're right. I, I, I want to admit when I, I should change what I'm what I'm saying, and I think it's what I mean. You understand who I was addressing? I was addressing yes, people who were trying to give a purely sort of bottom up account yeah, of why yeah. the cerebellum changed. And I think that's this way you've talked about it about the 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 enhancement of the multi aptness of our physical movement and our cognitive evolution are actually co-evolving together. I, I think, yes, I think that is a better way of putting it. So, which is actually, it's really cool because it ties into what we're saying right here. Kind of yeah. the focus of this conversation that I've been trying to bring out is that to, to enhance the multi-aptness of a human being and to take them towards that state of self-transcendence, something that combines these practices of mindfulness and contemplative practice and consciousness practice with something that, that allows the body to be involved and make that wisdom yeah. deeply embodied seems to me like the best solution that we can use going forward. And that's, and I totally agree with it. And one of my criticisms again of how mindfulness has been imported I mean, I think the mindfulness revolution is a symptom of the meaning crisis. The reason yeah. why, you know, this is, you know, what's happening. But one of my criticisms of it is we have imported mindfulness. We've taken it out of an ecology of practice, like the Eightfold Path, for example. That's an ecology of practices. It's represented by a wheel, yeah, yeah. right? Right. It's an ecology of practices. And we, we've taken out one thing. And then what we have is this sitted still practice of mindfulness. 
-hmm. And yes, does that improve your ability? Sure it does. But that's not, you know, you, 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 you can often make the mistake of, you know, pursuing a lesser good in favor of a greater good. Oh, well, this has improved me. Now I stop. This is a version of the Einstein effect, right? And so, yes, the sedative practice will make your life better. But that doesn't mean that it's the best, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that's a mistake. Like having an ecology of practices and definitely, like, I, I yes, I constantly argue that you need a movement mindfulness practice with the sedative practices. And also, the siddhas practices have to involve the body much more than is traditionally being taught. Yes, beautiful. totally beautiful. You said something in that uh, that interview I was listening to that I, I that really rang true for me. I posted this today. Don't tell me what you believe. Tell me what you practice. Yes, very how much. much those practices are making you more wise, more compassionate, more capable of self transcendent, and more capable of changing the world. Yes, that's right. Because another uh, symptom, I would argue. It's more. It's not only a symptom. It's 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 an it's exacerbating feedback of the meaning crisis. Is that we we represent the meaning crisis as uh, ideological opposition that is going to be resolved by adversarial combat with winner take all. And so we are we are stuck at this level uh, where meaning is not actually ultimately being made, the propositional level, and then we've given up the idea of a opponent processing within a, a, like a self-organizing process. And this is what point my, my friend Leo Ferraro often makes. And we replace this with this adversarial bottom line winner take all. And that whole, you know, that whole move misrepresents, misleads and exacerbates uh, the meaning crisis. So I don't want to, I mean, ultimately I care about what you believe or we couldn't have this conversation, but what matters to me is what do you practice and how is that working to transform you in the ways that we've been talking about? Yes. Yeah. Because that is what, that's where we have to look. So this is, this is really interesting to me because I've been, I've been, I've been hammering at my, at the idea of like, you know, taking George um, Peterson's thesis that basically there's the, the realm of action, which is religion, and the realm of, of, of knowledge or, or information, yeah. let's say science. Um, basically, what we're doing in movement practices, that self-cultivation thing would fit into this religious bracket, right? Um, and if you start expanding these ideas to say, well, I'm not just going to teach you how to jump farther. I'm going to teach you how jumping and overcoming something allows you to overcome fear and become more courageous and how that can be applied to the rest of your life. Yes. How you're doing something that's bigger. And, um, and, and then, and then if you take on the idea of the, like the heroic archetypes, the thing you're aimed at, is that Christ? And then are you, a, are you a Christian pastor teaching? Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but so this is, yeah, go ahead. I ran into, when I ran into your work and then also listening to a couple of my friends, it, it, it crystallized for me that, that, um, that you, you know, if you look at the Eastern traditions, it's a nice way to, to kind of a, a different lens because you have more syncretism there, right? You can be a Buddhist and a Taoist. You can practice these things together and you, and you can practice. And there's a difference between orthodoxy belief and orthopraxy, right? Yes. The tradition the Protestant tradition in the United States is very much about the belief uh, the idea that that's credo. Fully, it's credo. Yeah. It's yeah. fully yeah. believing is the only thing. If you can yeah. absolutely accept the, Jesus as your savior and it's in, in, yeah. in you and you completely accept that, then you're saved. But right. in a lot of other religious traditions, it's not so much what you believe, 
It's whether you're practicing the thing. And this is, um, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of ranting here, but this is all very important to me. So I grew up in the hippie community, right? Sure, sure. And so I grew up in this community of people who are talking about spirituality. They're talking about love. And, and, and so people would say, oh, I love you. Or, you know, we're in this spirit, bringing the light into the world. And then I looked at how people behaved. Right. Behaving a like lot of, a lot of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so I was like, I don't care. I don't care what you believe. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm interested in is how do we go about building these practices? And then when you look at it like that, it's essentially like, well, the Taoism or Buddhism or Vipassana, whatever there's, you can, you, what it seems like you're doing is you're extracting them from the necessity of a, of a supernatural claim to totally. recognize that yeah. they're useful technologies that we can apply to life. Right. I, I think that's the case. I would also like to emphasize, and I think the, th the series makes this clear, we have our own uh, we have our own wisdom traditions that we also need to go back and pay more attention to. I, you know, you know, the, the Neoplatonic tradition in port and Arthur versus Lewis's work on this, I think, is really, really central. We got to reconnect to that. And, and you know, and I, I think that we we didn't we don't have to stick with the two worlds mythology because the idea of the supernatural is a particularly creedal metaphysically ossified way of doing right the the um the, the two worlds and we don't have to commit to the two worlds mythology right in order to recover even our own wisdom traditions the neoplatonic even the neoplatonic christian tradition we yeah. we don't have to do that we like and so i'm pausing because i'm i'm, I'm trying to okay I'll, I'll introduce it but i think there is a way in which we can reintroduce the notion of sacredness as something different from right you know sort of supernatural power yeah. that we can understand sacredness instead as you know plato is sacred to me because I can constantly return to Plato, and Plato's a, fa a font of new intelligibility, new ways of making sense, right? And new ways of having insight through illusion into new ways of understanding and embodying love and ver like. So it's not that I think Plato is, you know, perfect or error free, but as I grow, Plato seems to grow with me. And yeah. there's a constant resonance that is constantly helping to articulate me, the world, open it up, help me connect, help me reflect, help me to communicate. And so what I'm proposing to you is not only can we sort of get free of the two worlds mythology, right? If we, if we can get, let go of the commitment to the supernatural, there's there's the opportunity, and other people are working on this. This is not my idea alone by any means, that we can come up with a new way of understanding sacredness. And I think that sacredness is ultimately about, right, this, this, this process of connectedness and meaning making, and that we find sets of psychotechnologies that can constantly evolve our capacity to reconnect deeply to ourselves, to each other in the world. And that's what sacredness is. It's this capacity for an evolutionary process of connection, I mean cognitive evolution, rather than the possession of a supernatural property in an object or thing or person. Yeah, that 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 resonates tremendously with me. You know, I I I'm a I'm a agnostic atheist, let's say. I, sure, I sure. think that we can know I I think that 
I have seen no evidence that would make it seem like it's logical to to pres- presume that God exists. Um, right. And 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 so there is this this potential for sort of disenchantment of the world. Yes. Like through the physical practices, I have moments of awe. Right. Yes. I have moments of of ecstasy. Right. Like being in these incredible places and seeing the beauty of of nature. And 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 I think that the idea that nature is sacred. Um, that that movement is sacred that that's viable to you now right it's viable to you right that's the point sacredness is about that viability it's not about the the truth the assertability of propositions yes very much and and so that so i think that you know again it goes back to the practice right Mm -hmm. always always and when i connect you know one of the things I feel uh, there's a metaphor that a friend of mine, Daniel Eisenman, uses. He talks about the menu versus the meal, mm-hmm. right? It's like all this propositional knowledge. Like I can sit here on a computer and I can read all day and acquire propositional knowledge, mm-hmm. um, but it's not necessarily very meaningful. Or I can go out and have experiences that are really meaningful. So if we think about this is one of the things that I that's important to me about the practice of movement in nature is we're creating a relational connection with nature. Yes. Like if I look at a picture of a beautiful tree on my computer, it has some impact on me. Mm-hmm. Right? If I read about the tree on Wikipedia, it has some impact on me. If I go to the tree and I look at it, it has an impact on me. But if I move in the tree, it has an entirely different impact on me. If I, well, learn, yeah. if I learn the ways that it can be used, if I learn what animals might be, taken from that tree like all those things layer meaning in a deeper way for me i think of um like nature as you talk you talk about in your uh in your talks about literacy and what would be taken from people if we strip literacy of their mind sure i think that what we've actually done is stripped physical and not nature literacy out of people like if, if yeah. we look at hunter forgers they walk through the woods and they see they read the environment the way that we read a book and to yes. us wall of green Yes, no, I agree with that. And I mean, I, I, I think you were doing, it, and I, I mean this in a complimentary fashion, mm-hmm. I think you're doing with the tree what I was talking about with Plato, right? You're getting to a situation where there's ongoing reciprocal realization. You're being opened up as the tree is being opened up. And, you know, and Plato is clear about this, right? That this is a kind of love because, I mean, love between people is reciprocal realization, right? Whether it's friendship, love, or romantic love. And you can get the, that reality is disclosing itself more to more to you in a fashion that's coupled to how you are opening yourself up and getting insight, listen to the word, insight more and more into it, right? And so I think, yeah, that is the way. Now, are you making the tree sacred? No, that's that's romanticism. That's that's the idea that it's a subjective projection. Is, is sacredness in the tree sort of like as a metaphysical property? No, that, 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 that's, but as you said, it's relational, it's transjective. The sacredness is something that the tree and I are co-creating together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that idea of the co-creation, this is, I think where ecological dynamics theory gets so interesting is this idea that, that everything is this relationship between the agent and the arena. Arena, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Meaningness is in that anyways. Yes, yes, at least that. Yes, for sure. Um, so, so um, the so there's this this layer of the movement that I wanted to get into, and one thing I wanted to bring up and, and talk to you about to to kind of bring us back to is is flow, and yeah. also this idea of 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 means of of getting rid of bullshit. 
Yes, yes, yes. Right? So yeah. in the flow state, you have um, this necessity for a tight coupling yeah. of feedback with act. Right. Clear, clear information, tight feedback. Uh, you need a, a, a really tight relationship between demand and your skills. Yes, all the stuff that Csikszentmihalyi talks about. Yep. Yeah, which is also, um, have you read um, uh, Super Forecasting by Philip Tetlock? No, I've heard of it, though. Also a really good book. But he also talks about essentially insight into how things actually work is also dependent on the same uh, process. You have to make mm. clear, create a clear decision or clear action around what's going to happen. It's like, I predict exactly this. And then you have to feed yourself information that will either confirm or disconfirm as fast as possible. Yes, tightly coupled. Yep. So this tight coupling is is really important. And this is where I think that parkour is this really cool uh, psychotechnology, let's say. Well, of course. Yeah, it's got all the features, right? You've got to have, it it can't be ambiguous, right? You have tight feedback. Uh, Error matters. Error is clearly diagnostic. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and then, of, of course, you, you're constantly having to innovate. You're constantly having to stretch your skills to match the dynamic ratcheting up or at least, you know, shifting of the demands that are placed upon you. I mean, yeah, parkour is just kind of like jazz movement. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it has all of the features uh, in it for sure. For sure. Yeah. And so what's interesting to me about it is like. So I, I'm also a martial artist, and you've had this interesting revolution in martial arts with MMA, right? Where yeah. where traditionally martial artists could could get away with making a lot of claims. Yes, right? yes, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like you do something beautiful, it's great. Nobody actually, people don't fight very often, so they don't have a way to test those claims. They don't have that tight feedback. That's right. That's right. That's right. And then all of a sudden, with MMA, it's like the feedback that that comes into martial arts. You know, it's like, well, these techniques are either working or they're not. Um, yeah. Really amazing about the process in parkour to me is you can't you can't lie to yourself at all. No, no. no you have to be, be real. You have to be careful. I mean, I agree with that. You can't uh, bullshit yourself. Well, you, well, yeah, sorry. But that wasn't what I was saying. What I wanted to make it clear is that the, that the flow state has that capacity, but you, you can, the flow state itself can be hijacked. Yes. Right, and, yeah. and so you can you be you can, and the WHO is considering making this a, a, a bona fide thing. You can become a video game addict. I mean, yeah. video games are flow induction machines, yeah. but they're a kind of bullshit because although they're 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 activating this machinery that's designed to get us to cut through to reality, what they do is give us a virtual reality that we're connecting to rather than. Reality, and so you, it, you know what? What I'm trying to suggest, although you're doing flow within the game, the game set setting itself can it can can create an uh, an addictive uh, kind of situation for you, and you can you can fall into. There's nothing, even flow, that we can't <laughs> turn into a mechanism for self-deception. I mean, this is a, this is my interpretation of the Buddha's, you know, all life is suffering, I think, which is a very bad translation. I think it's basically, there's nothing about you and there's no thing you do that can't be beset or twisted into self-deception, right? Um, What I always say is, you know, well, actually, I made this video a few years ago called uh, Stimulation Versus Nourishment. And the the basic idea is that, uh, it, it was based on something a friend of mine, Stephen Guillenay, said. He said that, what the food industry has done is they divorced flavor from nutrition. Yep, that's bullshit. The salience has been altered, has been removed, right, from the the truth or the reality of the food. 
It's exactly. causal. It's causal efficacy for us, and that's the that's the cause of the obesity epidemic. And, well, and yep, yep. when he said, "I had this insight cascade," as you would say, that that this is essentially. Um, you could you could look at any number of of like very popular products as doing this. That what a video game does is it divorces thrill or the flow state from physicality. Yes, yes. And yes. therefore, the benefit to the individual is rapidly diminished, right? And it's yes. hyper stimulating, so it's more you can get more of it, right? Yes, yes. Without yes. effort, right? It's like yes. when I do parkour, I can't tap into my flow state, but it's like I can only train for a few hours because yeah. my body will break down. But I can play. So video yeah, it has in, it has built-in constraints. Exactly, sexuality, right? Pornography yeah. is sexuality divorced from relationships. Relationships have all of this challenge and friction that forces yeah. you to grow. Exactly, exactly. Avoid exactly. all that. Um, yeah. uh, social media. Social media is this way of getting approval, right? Of getting dopamine hits from from people liking your posts without actually engaging in real dialogue or real face to face, and all those things that you get that nourish you from. A, from a from a standpoint so so i have this heuristic which is basically like if it was fun before like you know the 1800s or something it's really good for you <laughs> it's invented after that and it's really fun it's probably bad for you <laughs> yeah that's a good rule of thumb to, to at least start sorting things yeah, yeah. I, I think that's right i think the idea about you know paying attention to i, I like that way of putting it paying attention to stimulation versus um, nourishment, or, you, know, you know, that maps very well on paying attention to, you know, is it, what is it, is, are you finding it very salient or are you finding it very transformative, right? That, those are the, those are the key things. Now, you should find the transformative salient. Yes. Right, right, right. It, it, I, but, but you should also make sure that what you're finding salient is also transformative. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. So, so you, so this brings us back actually to the, this idea I introduced earlier that essentially the capitalism, um, it, it, it's a function that optimizes for production of capital, right? Right. There's this emergent yeah. problem that, 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 that if you can create something that's hyper stimulating, that is cheap to produce, relatively cheap to produce, um, or has high margins, that's the best way to win at the capitalist game. It just so happens that that erodes a lot of the things that human beings actually deeply, that deeply nourish human beings. Yeah, it's it's a short term uh, gain for long term uh, peril, right? And, 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 and so this is where I evoke the Fromian distinction that we talked. You mentioned at the very beginning, you know, between the having mode and the being mode. Uh, yeah. Fromm's point is that both of these modes are legitimate, right? The having mode is organ. We have to have things. We have to have water. We have to have food. We literally have to consume and in, import these things into our bodies. Right, and, and so, and, and and then there's a there's a there's a form of cognition and a, a and a form of consciousness that's appropriate. Like, so I need to understand things categorically. I need to categorize things, and I need to. So all glasses are basically the same for me, and I, I categorize so I can effectively manipulate and control things so that I can consume, and you know, and I have an I it relationship uh, with things. All of that, and 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 again, nothing wrong with that. Right, you you shouldn't have a deeply spiritual relationship, right, to everything in your environment because you know you're not going to leave your room in the morning, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and you, so, but on the other hand, right, we have we have being needs. That's that's Fromm's word for it. I I, li I like to think of them better as developmental needs, as becoming needs. We need to become mature, 
right? We need yeah. to become virtuous. We need to, right? We need to be in love. We need to become capable of, of giving and receiving love. Now, the problem we have is that the framework around that is a very different framework, right? I, I, I don't want to relate to things categorically, right? I want to relate to them, right? I want to be able to couple them. I want to be able to participate in reciprocal realization with them. And, and I'm not trying to just, like, when I'm in the having mode, I'm solving problems. When I'm in the developing mode, I'm confronting transformational challenge, which is a very, very different thing from, look, grief isn't a problem to be solved. It's like, oh, you're in grief. Like, the answer is 17, or the answer is do this. <laughs> Right. Grief is a, a, a developmental challenge you have to go through. There, there's no, there's nothing, there's no alternative to that, right? You have to go through grief. Now, why am I saying this? Because both of these are important sets of needs for us, and they have different cognitive frames, different ways in which our consciousness and our identities are taking shape. Both are appropriate. But, and so Fromm's point is modal confusion. Modal confusion is when you use the wrong mode for the needs that you're trying to, to get. Mm -hmm. Coming back to your point about capitalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? right? So if I can get you to think that, right, the way you become mature is by having a car or the way you become spiritual is by having, right, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a drink or some experience, right, a rave. An ayahuasca ceremony. Right. Or that, you know, the, the, you can be in love by having lots of sex. Right. Then I can sell you stuff. Yes. Right. Then I can sell you stuff. But the thing is, right, as long as I'm modally confused, I'm, those being needs aren't actually being met. So what do I do? As long as I'm trapped in modal confusion, I intensify my effort. Well, I, it must mean I'm, I need a better car. I must have more sex. Maybe I need to collect more of these spiritual experiences in order to show how unique and wonderful and special I am. Right? I, I need to have more of them. Right? And so what happens is right, you get caught up in right? Consuming and consuming and consuming and consuming in an ever increasing rate, but ultimately, you know, more and more, it's not satisfying to you. And, and then what Fromm predicted, and I think in a very prescient matter, is at some point people say, well, I, you know, screw it. And, and they start getting violent and destructive because at least in their violence and the destruction, they have returned to trying to be embodied and engaged with some kind of developmental change. Yeah, okay, well, that's beautiful, that was perfect. <laughs> because it actually goes right back to the, the thing that I started with, right? The story, right. Club, right? In the story of Fight Club, you have the narrator who's right. having mode. He meets yes. who's essentially in the being mode. He's rejecting right. all of that. He's all about how, what is he experiencing in the moment? Right, right, right. Deal with all this, and then so I, I was I was listening to to you talk about the the having versus the being mode, and it seemed to me that you, you need to talk about, or it seems to me that there's a triumph. There's three there. There's having, being, and becoming. Those are mm -hmm. three separate modes, right? Because it seems to me a practice like um, like mindfulness is about your subjective moment to moment experience. Mm -hmm. Okay. A practice like parkour is more about becoming something more powerful. Sure. Right? There's sure. this subjective moment-to-moment -moment experience of it, but that's so driven by the idea that you're you're going to jump farther, you're going to do bigger things, you're going to do this. Sure. And, sure. and so I've uh, so so then what's interesting you you brought up the idea that that when we 
when we're when we're stuck in that, we get into violence because that's what happens in the story, right? Yeah, that's Have right. These dis these alienated young men, they find that there's a process that they can engage in that starts them into this becoming mode, but it's it's not culturally mature. It doesn't no. have a good direction, and so it ends up going down the path to to something dark. And I think that this is one of the central problems that we face. Like I think this is behind the rise of like the alt-right and 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 like crazy SJW is is this need to identify and be engaged in a process that's meaningful. Yes, I think I think that's right. And we need I, mature cultural traditions that allow us to cultivate that in a sophisticated way. Yes. Uh, and I mean and, and Fight Club even I, I mean I, I think it's been around long enough that I'm not going to be guilty yeah. of a spoiler, right? Yeah. I mean, and Fight Club even has the 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 you know the idea that 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 I forget the name the Brad Pitt character's name. Tyler uh, Durden. Yeah, is ultimately a, a projection, right? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that what what is needed is an integration and a, an actual you know remembering and reintegration of these two things together. Reconnection. Yeah, yeah, very much, and. Uh, and so I, I, I think that's fundamentally right. I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I want to change what I'm going to say. I used to be a lot more pessimistic about all of this. Uh, um, but one of, the, one of the gifts of the video series is that I have become more and more connected to people like yourself in many different ways, like what you're doing. And I'm talking to a guy who's got a dojo and he's trying to figure out how can I bring in the wisdom practices to yeah. do character cultivation, right? Wisdom cultivation with the martial arts. I'm talking to people or, you know, how can we set up secular monasteries and, you know, and how can we create networks, yes. right? I, 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 it, it, so what is just made an a, a impression on me Right, it, 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 it's, it's really making me more optimistic, which is not uh, sort of my natural orientation, right? Is that just, just, there is more and more of this bottom-up grassroots attempts to create real practices, real cultures of awakening, real communities that, for responding to and addressing the meaning crisis. That, that has just been, um, deeply, deeply encouraging uh, to me, and I just want to—I I mean, I want—I want to share that with your viewers because I don't want them feeling that they're isolated either. That no, no, this is this is—you know—it's not just you know the thrashing, the violence in response to the meeting crisis. There is also this other thing that is you know organically growing in response that I think holds real hope, real rationally acceptable hope. For giving us a response to the meaning crisis, that's that's perfect. Um, I think that these type of conversations, like we're having here, where we're we're bringing people who have deep scientific knowledge, people who've got deep movement practice knowledge, people have spiritual tradition knowledge, together and networking these ideas through larger uh, sets of people, um, is where those practices can can spread and can be become something more sophisticated. Yeah, I agree. Um, um, so I think that's a good place for us to actually uh, close this particular interview um, okay. because it's a, it's a wonderful end note, a grace note at the end of this. I really hope that you'll, you'll have another conversation with me on this because uh, I feel like we, we 
touched about a million things and and would have loved to go much deeper on them um uh you invite me i'll come back because this was excellent you like you were fantastic as an interlocutor like i uh, this was a really i really really enjoyed i felt this was i mean i understand you know when when I'm doing an interview, very often people want me to articulate, and you were affording that. Yeah. But what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to also compliment is there was there was a lots of genuine dialogue in what was happening between us, and I, and I found that really really enriching. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, I will definitely have you on again soon. It was an immense pleasure, and uh, and yeah, John Vervaki, thank you very much. So thank gonna... you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Okay, we're back with John Vacky real quick because I've got a couple of questions that I think are really valuable. Um, I wanted you to just tell us where people can find your work and uh, and how they can kind of continue uh, digging into all these concepts that we've, uh, we've gone into. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, so definitely, I mean, I have a YouTube channel, and on the YouTube channel, they can find the video series that we've mentioned a couple of times, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. They can also find several playlists about other topics, you know, altered states of consciousness, um, uh, relationship between AI and uh, our need to cultivate wisdom. There's all kinds of things uh, there that they, they can make use of. Um, they can go to open book publishers and get, can read uh, the zombie book that uh, I mentioned, uh, that Chris and Philip and I wrote. They can read that for free online. So just go to open book publishers, put in John Ravaki and that book will come up. You can order it for Amazon if you want to if you need a physical copy, but you can read it for free on open book uh, publishers. And, you know, and if people really want to dig deep, uh, there's, you know, they, there's, there's a lot of my academic publications and things like that they, they, can, they can look to. But I would imagine that for most people, what's going to be most useful to them are, are the, it's the video series in the book. Cool. And you have a, is your website just johnbervacki.com? Um, yeah, that, the, yeah, the, the website is that, and, uh, and, uh, like I say, if you go on YouTube and just put in John Verveke, you'll get, you'll get my YouTube channel. And then last question, um, for someone who's interested in these topics that we've talked about, if there are five books that kind of anybody could go into and, and get something really valuable out of, uh, what would you recommend? Five books, the desert island books. Um, so I would recommend, first of all, really seriously re reconnecting to our own wisdom traditions. And uh, two people that I would recommend looking at are the work of Pierre Hadot, What is Ancient Philosophy? And then I would also recommend looking at the work of Arthur Verse Lewis, um, his book on the, uh, the Platonic mysticism or perennial philosophy. Good uh, introduction uh, to, to those. I would recommend for those people who really want to like wrestle with sort of east-west connections and how that connection can be applied to the meaning crisis, I would recommend getting, in getting connected to work on the Kyoto School. Robert Carter's book, uh, The Introduction to the, Ky uh, the Ky Kyoto School, is really important. And once you do that, right, you might want to tackle a difficult, but one of the five best books I've read in my entire life, which is uh, Nishitani's book, Religion and Nothingness which is all about all of this and the connections uh, uh, to um, the connections between, I should say, you know, uh, spirituality and addressing uh, meaningless and meaning crisis. Uh, it, it's a seminal work and it's deeply influential on me. Um, I would, I, I would also recommend that people read Csikszentmihalyi's flow book, uh, you know, to get, get in good touch with that, um, all of that ideas uh, and 
Uh, perhaps, I, I, how many is that? That's four? Um, I, I just gotta, gotta come up with a, a fifth one. Um, I, I think you might wanna take a look at the Slingerland's book, Trying Not to Try, uh, because he also was bridging between sort of cognitive science and sort of Eastern tra traditions of flow and development that I think would also be really relevant to your viewers. Beautiful, thank you very much. Once again, uh, it was wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you very much, I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.